Let's go to the word or go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a great blessing it is to be with your people in this that is your house, not this building, but these your people. That we are part of your body that you have shed your blood for us individually, but you did that corporately, that the world may know that you love us. Father, I pray that you would magnify your name in this body today, Lord. The Father, the things that come out of my mouth would be an echo chamber of your truth that you are revealing to us today that each one of us individually would be built up in our inner man, in our spirit, by your spirit, that we would be a blessing to each other and to this body. Father, this is all completely impossible outside of you doing that which you have told us that you desire to do. So, Father, give us ears to hear and a desire to obey. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life in Christ. Life with Christ. Life because of Christ. Wouldn't you agree with me that this is of paramount importance for us to understand? Shouldn't we know what these things are, what they're supposed to be, what the evidence of true life in Christ is? Shouldn't it, this life that's in, with, and because of Christ, be the cure for fear in our lives? In our verses today, Jesus gives us the vaccine for all the ailments that this life has. He gives us, he provides for us hope, not a false hope, but the only real hope that we can ever have. But before we can get to what that hope is, we need to lay some groundwork. The reason for doing this is that we need to make sure that we have some basic terminology down, some basic understanding of words and meanings, that we're all thinking the same concerning the meaning of these things. Not so much thinking and knowing them in agreement with each other, but that we know them, that we understand them as the word of God uses them, as God means them. That we know them the way that the Bible speaks to us in. And the words that we're going to focus on all are drawn from the first verse today. They are the essentials of it. That verse that is the cure, the vaccine, the hope for all the redeemed, which is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The terms that we are going to look at deal with the why our hearts are troubled why we need to believe in God, and who this God is that we are to believe in. So let's start with God, and more specifically, Jesus. The Apostle John described him in verse 1 of chapter 1 for us, when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one sentence is perfect. This one sentence is the the summation of the essence of the incarnate God here. In this one verse is the theme of this gospel. It's not only the theme of this gospel, but also the how, the what, and why of those that have been redeemed. And this one verse gives insight into the character, the power, and the love of God. So much so that the early church meditated on this one single verse more than any other in their desire to know 
their God. Verse 1 speaks of the eternality of God, that he proceeds from the beginning. It speaks of the nature of who he is in describing him as the word, knowable, understandable, relatable. The word is all that is good, all that is perfect, all that is loving, and the word became flesh. We need to make sure that we have a good working understanding of who God is and what he is like. Otherwise, we will live in fear. And as proof of this, look around at all those that live fearfully, live bound by greed, by worry, and all claim to know and believe in God. God is either a liar or they don't know this God that we are told by them that they believe in. But God is from the beginning, which means that he is Lord over everything. God is the word. He is the essence of holiness, of love, of goodness, of justice, of mercy, and of wrath, and he became one of us. The incarnation of Christ, God in the flesh, stepping down from all eternity and living among men, living a perfect, sinless life, he did this for a purpose. And he became man more than just so that we can get acquainted with him. There was a reason that he became one of us that he lived a perfect, sinless life. He lived for a purpose. And we're told what that purpose is in that first, first chapter of John, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here is the second thing that we need to make sure that we understand. Most in the world who claim to believe in God most of those people that actually claim to believe in God also believe that people are generally good. Well, if that was true, then why was it necessary for God to step down from eternity to, to live a sinless life and become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And what verse 29 is talking about is called atonement. Practically, the definition for atonement means to make reparations for wrong, for a wrong or for wrongs that have happened. We need to make sure that we understand what it was that Jesus made atonement for before we can understand the price that was actually paid for that atonement. And in verse 29, we are told that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Here's a hint at the price of that atonement already the one that takes away the sins of the world. And within that verse is a thing that, the, uh, that atonement was made for, specifically something called sin. What is sin? And then we're told who that atonement was made for as well. So what is sin? Why is knowing what sin is important? One reason is because we are told that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. And that verse is talking about a punishment for whatever sin is. And whatever that thing is that is called sin, it is serious enough for the punishment for it to be death. So whatever sin is, it brings about this punishment, a death sentence with it. But then we're told in Ephesians 2.1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That verse is meaning before this atonement was applied, that we are already dead in our trespasses and sins. So whatever this sin thing is that has killed us already, do you understand why we need to know what sin is? Why you should be taking notes? Whatever it is that this thing that is called sin is, has already killed us. Either that or our death is inevitable. 
or maybe both. So what is the death that this sin thing brought into our lives, the lives of humans? Well, let's start with the obvious. You're all here. If you didn't know that, you are. You're all breathing, turning O2 into CO2. This is not the matrix. You are alive. And because of this truth, we know that the death that we are told of in, in that Ephesians verse cannot mean physical death, since it speaks of death in the past tense, which says, again, that Ephesians verse, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when Paul wrote both to the Romans and the Ephesians, he was thinking of living, breathing humans, just like us. So some would presume that whatever this death thing is that that sin thing brought in, it can't mean the end of our physical life. But then we're told in, a in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That verse adds a new twist to this death thing that we are sentenced to because of this sin thing. And this verse seems to tell us that whatever the death thing is, it happened because of the sin of Adam. And a thing called life happens for those that are toned for by Christ. So what is death? Is it just the stopping of our hearts, of our body functioning? Is that it? Well, God in his goodness tells us what this death thing is, what the wages of that sin thing is. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 2, it says this, But your iniquities, there's that sin thing, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so he, that he does not hear you. This is the great definition of the death that sin has brought into our life. A death that happens to living, breathing humans. It is separation from God. Well, you may be sitting there thinking, well, separation from God doesn't seem to be all that awful. It's certainly not to be awful enough to be considered dead. And if you think that way, it's only because you don't understand that first term that we talked about. However, when you begin to understand how we are dead because of that separation, then you can begin to understand why this death is so bad. Because we really are dead outside of Christ. We really are zombies that are living in what used to be real humans outside of Christ. And we get a glimpse of the consequences of, of this death in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This verse speaks to the verse concerning being dead in Adam, but alive in Christ, explains those. It gives us an understanding of how we have killed ourselves while we're still alive. It demonstrates to us the seriousness of this death that we live in, the death that precedes the end of this life, the death that lasts for all eternity. Because we are not just flesh and bone. Our lives are not merely what happens in this realm. We are not the result of millions or billions of years of random events happening and cells evolving. We are created beings made in the image of God. And we have been given eternal souls by him, which we have killed by this thing called sin. Not only have we killed our soul to God, but because of this sin thing, we will all physically die as well. This all can be confusing. If only we had something that explained all this for us. 
we only had some verses that summed it all up, illuminated it for us. Well, luckily, we've been given Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he nailed to the cross. Outside of Christ, who is the word, the one that was with God, the one that is God, we were dead. But because of Christ, we are alive. There is a reality that because of the sin of Adam, death entered into our realm. You may be at this moment living, alive. But at the same time, you could still be dead, really dead. If you have not been atoned for by the Lamb of God. But even if you are alive in Christ, have been atoned for. Because of the, you're still going to die, I'm sorry. You still are going to die. Every one of us, we have a doctor in our midst who treats us because we are all dying. This is one of the effects of the sin of Adam. We, like everything else in God's creation, are born dying. This is one effect of sin. But the reality of sin is far worse than just death. It is that separation, that eternal, inseparable separation from God that many, if not most, live in daily. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually. At the moment that you sinned, a moment so long ago that in your past that you don't even recall it. At that moment, you hardened your already dead heart and blinded your already blind eyes. But what is this thing we hear so much about that I've been talking so much about, that thing called sin? What is it that killed us spiritually and brought death into this realm? Is it just bad actions? Wrong thoughts? Well, a great working understanding of sin is given us in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is not being tempted. It's not from the outside of us. It comes from the inside of us. It's not the things that our eyes lust after. It's not the things that our flesh lusts after. But it is the thing that is called pride of life. So what is sin? Well, we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. Okay, but what is lawlessness? Well, lawlessness is a violation of a law. Not human laws, because we're dealing with God here. Okay, we get that. But what's God's law? Is it the Ten Commandments? If that's the truth, and if he's so good, then why can't he just overlook his law? Change his law. Bend his law. We, know, we need to know what this law is that we have broken, that our pride breaks, that has killed us and will kill us. Well, we're told in Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so now we know that sin is a transgression of the law and that love fulfills the law. But what is this law? Well, once Jesus was asked a question, this question, and by his reply, we can understand what the law of God is. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, 
a scribe came and asked Jesus what the greatest of the laws was. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he said, and you shall love your God, your Lord God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The first thing that Jesus told this man is the summation of this law. Did you catch what it was? Before he actually told the man what the greatest of the laws is, it is his essence, his being. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He is the law. He is his law, his being, his nature, his character. This is his law, which is why he cannot change his law, why he can't just overlook his law, and why he just can't bend his law. But his law in this realm is not him. It just describes him in this realm. It isn't him, but it is of him. And anything outside of him is not of him. And anything contrary to him is not of him. And anything that is outside of him or contrary to him is a replacement of him. It is an antichrist. This is sin. We see a great example of this reality at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, which is the telling of the fall of Lucifer, which says, How, are you, how have you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will replace God with me. This is the essence of sin. It is thinking that we get to decide concerning anything and everything that relates to God. Hear that James verse again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this understanding of sin ties in with our verses from today. So hang on to that James verse. Because the James verse describes that anti-vaccine the vaccine that Jesus has just given these men. This understanding of what sin is, is why Satan, that fallen angel, Lucifer, began his temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 1 with, did God really say? Because at that point, neither Adam or Eve had sinned. They hadn't transgressed the law, hadn't taken the name of the Lord in vain. We need to really consider this event. Really consider how it applies to us here and now. First, we need to ask ourselves, what in the world were they doing anywhere near that tree? The only, only forbidden thing in all of the garden. What were they doing anywhere near that tree? But how many of us here today we hear the law of God, the commands of God, the ones that he gives us to protect us, and then we try and get as close as we possibly can to them without breaking them. And we think Adam and Eve were stupid. Second, 
Why did Adam allow Eve to talk to the serpent? Allow the serpent to talk to his wife? Men, are you doing the same thing with your wife? Allowing the enemy access to them instead of stepping in and just telling her, no, no, you will not go to that Joyce Myers conference. No, you will not listen to Beth Moore. No, you will not read The Shack or Jesus Calling or any other heretical books that are sold under the heading spirituality. And the actions by Eve was sin. But her sin was different than Adam's. She was deceived, for we're told Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's 1 Timothy 2.14. But did you catch what he said there? She became a transgressor, which means that she became a sinner before Adam. So then, why did sin enter through Adam and not Eve? Because she was the one talking with the serpent. She was the one that first took of the fruit, decided that what God said didn't pertain and ate of it. So why are we consistently told in the Bible that it was through Adam that sin entered the world? As in Romans 5, verses 13 and 14, which says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who hadn't sinned according to the likeness of his transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. How can that be when we know that it was Eve who ate the fruit first? Why did Adam get the blame? The answer is summed up in a term called federal headship. It's then that term is explained to us in Genesis 1, verses 16 through 17. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The reason is called federal headship. It was to Adam that God gave dominion, responsibility for all the garden. And this included his soon-to-be helper, Eve. Men, I want you to think this through. Because do you understand that the federal headship of Adam still applies to you as a husband? That you are accountable for your wife what you allow in your home, what you allow your wife to see, to read, to do, if any of it is sinful, it is your fault. And you will be held accountable for it. And this also applies to you men who the Lord has not yet introduced you to the woman that you are married to, are married to. You will be responsible her so become a man now God atonement death sin federal headship we need to have a clear understanding of all of this and the reason is that if we don't then we can get flustered and off base and turned around and talking to people about Christ and his atonement and the reason for this is also because if and when we have a bad understanding of God, of sin, his atonement, we cannot do the command of verse 1 from our scriptures today. And as an example of getting confused, flustered, thrown off, let me ask you this. What if someone came up to you and asked you this? Is the blood of Christ sufficient to take away the sin of every person for all time? What would you say? Because in your Reformed understanding, you know that not everyone's sins are covered by the blood. But you also know that the blood of Christ can't be limited. So what do you say? You should say, that the blood of Christ is sufficient to wash away the sins of the whole world, but it is only 
efficient for those that are of the elect of God. The atonement is powerful enough, sufficient enough to clear the sin of all the world for all time, but it is applied only to those that it was given for. In other words, it was only for the elect that Christ died. So does that mean that the sins of those that are not of the elect can never be covered, never be atoned for? Yes, this is what it means. And all this truth is important because what Jesus tells these men on this day does not apply to everyone. And all these truths have led us and the disciples to this point in their life. Now, we are ready to deal with what it was that Jesus had to say to us today beginning in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me as well. This verse is like an onion. There are so many layers of reality within this statement. The first is that you must be of Christ. You must believe in God. That seems like a no-brainer. But sometimes you have to start or state the obvious to be able to build from it. Do you believe in God? This seems to be importance in this statement. There seems to be an effect that happens because of it. Do you believe in God? The God that is the essence of the law. The God that is holy, completely unlike you. The God that you cannot alter or affect. The God that is from the beginning. Do you believe in this God? And the second thing that I want you to grasp is what Jesus is telling, this men, telling these men. The thing that he's getting at is that although Although for them, every indication in their life in that realm would very soon and for a while would tell them that they were completely wrong about this man who they thought was God. Even though that would be their reality, they needed to believe in him, to hang on to belief in him. You believe in God. Believe in me as well. Even when you see the mob, the local authorities come and publicly arrest me. You believe in God. Believe in me as well. Even when you see me being beaten, kicked, slapped, spit upon. You believe in God. Believe in me as well. Even when you see that crowd rise up against me and call for me to be crucified, even as you see me stripped, beaten within an inch of my life, and then forced to carry the instrument of my death to the place of my death, bloody, shaking, weak, frail, and naked, you believe in God, believe in me as well. Even when you see me lay the, when you see them lay me on that tree and nail my hands and feet to it and then hoist me up and slam me down into the hole. When you see me suffering in severe pain and when you hear me cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You must believe in me. Even though everything in your life is pointing to a reality that is contrary to me. And you must believe in me because if you do not, then when your hearts are troubled, and they will be, you will fall away. And this truth applies to us as well. Because there will be, will, there will be times in your life when everything around you points to the fact that you cannot trust God. You may be fired for no reason at all. Your wife may pick up and take your kids and leave for no reason at all. 
Your child may die. You may be forced to file bankruptcy. You may be thrown in jail to be taken advantage of by the savages that are in that jail because you stood on the word of God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And because of this, there is something that you can do when your hearts are troubled. Do you know that God realizes that your heart can be troubled by pain, by stress, by worry, by the reality of death? Do you know that there's something you can do about it? You have been given power over this. You have been provided the salve to cure it, the cure for anxiety within your life. And that cure is belief. Belief in God. Belief in Christ. And belief, true saving belief, can best be understood by that James verse that I spoke about earlier, the one concerning sin, the anti-vaccine verse, which says, when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Because true belief always produces actions. I said that this James verse is the anti-vaccine. Well, well, hear what happens to that verse when you remove sin from it and replace that with belief. Hear that verse again. When each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his troubled heart, then belief in God, when it has conceived and gives birth to action, and action, when it fully groans, brings works of faith, of belief. If temptation, outside of us temptation, is the thing that causes the inside of us thing that we know is pride to conceive and produce sin, then can we not see how Jesus has given us the antidote for this? That James verses describes the Antichrist. This verse from today describes Christ. And belief in Christ always produces actions. And these actions are called faith. And they are the cure for your troubled heart. And the demonstration of that belief through actions of faith are supposed to happen within your local church community. Wait, where are you getting that last part from? I get the actions of faith thing, the self-help pick-me-ups that I need to do, but are you really standing up there just trying to tell me that this is all about the church? Are you trying to get me to invest in these people that I've made a covenant with God with as if that's important? I thought that belief in God, those actions were personal, that they happened for and in me. Where in the world are you getting this nonsense that they happen within the local church community? Before I answer that, let me just address this issue of worry, a troubled heart. Is worrying a sin? Peter, one of these men that Jesus is addressing, the one that has been humiliated, called out at least twice on that night, the one that would deny Christ that very night, he addresses the reality that because we live in a fallen world, because we are saints trapped in bodies of death, because of these realities, we will have anxieties. But he too, just like Paul and Jesus, tells us, what to do with those anxieties. He said, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. So is worrying, letting your heart be troubled, is that a sin? Well, did Jesus say, hey, when your heart gets worried, it's okay. I understand. 
what are you going to do? You really are on your own. You really can't rely or depend on anyone or anything outside of you. So yeah, you better go ahead and worry. In fact, now that I've rethought this whole thing, you had better let your hearts be troubled. In fact, after reflecting on the fact that you have no one that you can count on but yourself, since you are on your own, you should worry. In fact, you don't worry enough. Do you see? Belief in God is supposed to make a difference. This is why I spent all that time laying the groundwork to ensure that you had a clear understanding of God, of sin, of death, of the atonement. Because when we think about God, about who he is, when we hold on to the promises that we know are truth concerning us and him, then we really have nothing to worry about. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now I can answer that controversial you doing acts of faith in your local church community thing. If you haven't noticed, we haven't got to verses 2 and 3 yet. And in those verses, Jesus says something that seems hard to understand. And they're hard to understand because they've been taken way out of context. They are so often misquoted and misunderstood. Here are those verses 2 and 3. In my father's house are many rooms. We've heard that said mansions. If it weren't so, I have, to, I, would, I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. This is what was told to them. All of them, not just one of them, the place that Jesus was going was not just for each of them individually. It was for all of them. His body will be one in that place that he is going to prepare a place for. Has a light bulb gone on? Can you understand now? Can you see how we've been taught to think that this verse, these verses was all about you? Can you see how they were coated with sugar and worldliness and American individuality? How often you've, have you heard that very humble preacher say, talk about Sister Susie and her mansion on the hill that he'll never even get close to because she's been a humble servant serving in the kids' wing for 50 years. I'll just be very happy if I get a cardboard box as long as I'm in heaven. We have been taught to think that these verses are telling us individually that our home in heaven will be personal and not corporate. We have been taught that these mansions that we are told about, that Jesus has gone to prepare for us, are single-family dwelling units. You may have to share them with somebody, but you're going to get at least 2,000 square feet of personal living space. Just so that you won't be bothered by other people. And then those other people that will live in that house with you, you get to decide who that is. This is all wrong. This is not only a bad understanding of what Jesus said. It is an outright heretical lie. The reason for this is found within the importance of the church and the life of the believer. The you in these verses is a collective you. He, Jesus, wasn't looking at Peter and telling him, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then looking at John and saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then looking at Thomas and saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He was going to prepare a place for you. But there are those that will counter, well, but the word that's used for room or house there 
in verse 2 is the same word that is used elsewhere to mean a literal house or room. So does that mean that what Jesus was saying here had to be taken literally? If you say yes, that it has to be, since this is what he said, then you must also hold that back in chapter 6, when he told the Jews that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood, that he was meaning his literal body and blood, just as they thought. Now, the correct understanding for what Jesus was telling these men, his church concerning what he meant when he said home, can be found a bit later in this chapter, in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 14, which tell us, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my, my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Did Jesus, did Jesus mean here that for those that believe in him, that he and the Father, that they're going to come and move in with them into their house? If that is the literal meaning of that, then some of you guys need to do some house cleaning because I've been to your houses. No, the reality is that back in verse 2, Jesus is talking not about mansions or houses, not about a location at all, but the spiritual position that these men will have in Christ, the spiritual position that we have in Christ, which is the cure for anxiety, according to Jesus. It's belief, belief in God and belief in him. And because of this belief, they, these men, become heirs to the throne of God. They're allowed to boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Isn't this what we are doing? And this reality that Jesus is about to go secure is the cure for all depression, worry, anxiety. And this cure is supposed to be found in the love that was demonstrated to them by Christ, the same love that we are to love each other with. How many of us here, sitting here today, have struggled with anxiety, worry, our hearts being troubled? And how many of us here have actually poured into the local body the way that we have been commanded by God? Could there be a correlation between this disobedience and our fears? What would happen to our fears if we actually loved like Christ loved us? What would happen to them when we were more focused on others within our church community, focused on getting to know them, to serve them, love them, than we are ourselves and our little lives? Church, Look around you at these people. We are told that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. You. What if that place that he's gone to prepare, what if that place is this place minus the sin? What if these people are the ones that for all eternity you will be closest to, that you will be linked with? Are we not told that where two or more gather that he's in our midst? Are we not told that we are the body of Christ, that his church is his bride? Perhaps our understanding of life with Christ, life in Christ is all wrong just like we were completely wrong concerning those mansions. And verse 2 is the watershed text for the prosperity gospel people, as well as many who are within mainstream, mainstream evangelicalism. And just as much as verse 2 has been butchered and taken out of context, verse 3 is the premillennial dispensational holy grail. It, too, has been butchered and taken out of context. Verse 3 is all about eschatology. Eschatology 
just means the end times. And verse 3 says, if, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you may also be where I am. The return of Christ and the end times has made many men very rich. Those guys that wrote that Left Behind series, they do have mansions, real mansions here, because people, Christians, are confused and worship false gods that are made in the image of God. But it's not because Christ was unclear or vague concerning the end times. So let's dig into this eschatology thing. Verse 3, he says, if I go. Well, did he go? He did. So we know that this is a rhetorical question, meaning since I went. Since I went and prepared a place for you. Uh-oh, there's that you again. But again, think about who was sitting there. Who would, in a few verses, ask questions of him? Was it one person or many people? Well, it was many people. So he's talking about a collective you, not the American you. Since I went and prepared a place for y'all, I will come back and welcome y'all into my presence so that y'all may be where I am. The dispensational premillennialist will tell you that none of this can happen until a few things are checked off a list. A list has been given to us in the book of Revelations, in the book of Daniel. This is the American 20th century understanding of eschatology. And this is why many of us still fear, allow our hearts to be troubled. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. When did these men, those that Christ was talking to, when did, they, when did they think he was going to return? Were they looking at a checklist? Waiting for the temple to be rebuilt, even though it was still standing? Listen to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Come now, you who are rich, weep and wail over the misery to come upon you. Your riches have rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and consume your flesh like fire. You have hoarded treasure in the last days. Those are the verses 1 through 3 of the fifth chapter of James. That sure sounds like James was thinking that they were living in the last days, that Jesus could return at any moment. And do yourself a favor and read those five chapters of the book of James, because even though you're going to find that they're full of things spoken individually concerning people, admonishments from James to people individually, it is always in the context of the betterment of the local church, not for you. And then listen to the author of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold res uh, resolutely to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to spur one another to the love and good deeds. Let us not neglect meeting together as some have made a habit, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, what day is he referring to in that last verse? Did these people meet really, really early in the morning before the sun rose? Or maybe, or did these people meet late at night? Is that what he means here? No. He, they understood that the day of the Lord could happen at any moment. And again, did you notice that this author is speaking to a collective us there? He's talking to the church. And then listen to John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. So, I'm sorry, this is how we know this is the last hour. The reality is the men that were reclining on those cushions in that upper room understood that the moment that Christ ascended back into heaven, he began the millennial period, and he could come back at any time. 
And this is the reason that they lived with zeal, with gusto, with passion. Their master could come back at any time, and they wanted to be about their father's business. And this is also does have a bearing on why so many are so casual concerning life with Christ, life in Christ. Because we're living, waiting for that checklist to be checked off. I don't have to worry about my father coming back. When I see that temple being rebuilt, then I'll get serious. Saints, can you not see? Do you not see that we have been sold a bill of goods concerning the church? The love that we have been given, our life in Christ. Can you now see why the command by Christ to not let your hearts be troubled because we believe in God? Why that has never really worked in our lives? This is why people can mock the word of God. They will tell you openly, I believed in God, but that he did nothing to stop my worry. That belief in him did nothing to avail them of anxiety. God is a liar. You cannot believe him. And this is reality because we have been taught that we are individuals in Christ. We have had that demonstrated to us from the top down, no matter what those that teach scripture have said. And for this reason, because we have been taught to be Lone Ranger Christians, even while we've been told, you need to join a church, we've always been disappointed in the church. Why our life within the church has always been lacking. Why the church itself has been limping along, anemic, non-essential. Saints, I implore you, do not hear this sermon and just file it away in your life. Think about these truths. Because this is the will of the Lord in your life, in your walk with him. He desires that you not fear that you not allow your hearts to be troubled and that you don't allow that to happen because you believe in him. And because you have believed in him, that you take actions of faith in this, his church, which he has commanded that you love as he loved you. And don't think that the anemic state of the church and the fearfulness of and anxiety within your heart that either of these things are non-related, that either of these things are actually the desire or design will of the Lord for you or his church. Saints, repent and then obey. It is then that we will see the body work properly, that his church will be esteemed as essential and personally, it is then that you will know that you don't have to let your hearts be troubled, that you can do something about it, that belief in God does make a difference. This assurance is given to us, each one of us, individually. But it is also, and more importantly, given to us collectively. The cure for fear, for anxiety, for a troubled heart is found in belief in God. It is found in God. But are you in Christ? Has his love been poured out into your heart? Has he redeemed you? Do you believe in God? Well, praise God if that's true. Because he's redeemed you. He has saved you. But he saved you, us, as his body, not individually. We are all loved individually by God. Don't get me wrong on that. 
but we were never redeemed for ourselves. We have been atoned for, redeemed for, purchased at a great, great price for Christ. And his church is his body. Saints, love one another. Do it out of love for the Father. Do it out of devotion to the Son. Do it for the glory of the Spirit. But do it so that the world may know that you are His. And by this, the world will glory at the love that He has for His body, that He has for you as a member of His body. And in doing this, you will not, or you will be able to not let your heart be troubled. Because you believe in God. Let's pray.